Podcast Metal, episode 43. This is the second in my series on years of the current decade, 2010 through to 2019. So we're looking at uh, the year 2011 here. Now, 2011's a really interesting year, whereas 2010 was undeniably a great year for metal. So many really interesting, not just in the progressive realm, but a lot of bands just nailing the existing sound and then guys taking it out into incredible places. 2011 was the polar opposite. 2011 was a year, actually, it's probably, as a metal fan who, I guess, started out being into metal around 2003, something like that, this is the year I came closest to giving up on the genre. And I think we'll get into that, like, kind of in a moment. So, I'm gonna, the structure of this episode would be, I'll talk about a lot of the stuff that came out this year, and then do the top 15 albums, like 15 to 1, at the end. So, let's start off with why I think 2011 really was not a strong year in metal. Now, for me, I think the problem I had was this was at the point where I was starting to get into more interesting music, but a lot of the stuff I was still buying were the kind of classic bands, and so many classic bands had the absolute shiter, like, career-low album. Um, and a, a lot of ones I was very fond of, though, whereas, like, I think there was about 10 albums this year I bought, like, the day they came out, and listened to like two or three times went, oh, that, that wasn't that great. So if you've done any research on this here, there's a couple of albums I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of you did the same as me, have bought them when they came out that were just spectacularly disappointing. One really obvious one early on is, so Morbid Angel, 2011, really exciting times, reformed with David Vinson for the first time in however many years, and we're releasing a follow-up studio album to hopefully continue where they left off with Domination, and out came Illum Divinus Insanus, and it is fucking horrible. If you've never heard it, it's one of those albums where moments of it are so bad, I would highly advise you go and look it up. Overall, it's got moments of, like, the, the kind of great death metal you expect from that group of people, but this stuff that and since since it coming out and kind of getting critically panned, Trey has very much thrown Dave Vincent under the bus and blamed him for it. But the kind of there's a load of tracks that I can only describe as Rob Zombie worship on it. So yeah, I, I'm much like a lot of people. I totally bought into the hype behind this album, bought it straight away, and I think I listened to it twice out of sheer amazement, um, and then never never put the thing on again. Another amazing one. That I don't think many people actually bought because as soon as the concept was announced, we knew we were in for <laughs> something bizarre. This is Metallica and Lou Reed's Lulu. When Metallica announced they were going to do a experimental, like partially improvised album with Lou Reed, I think even their staunchest fans were saying to themselves, "Why?" Do you, how could this possibly be good? And the end result is utterly baffling. Um, I've not heard any positive reviews of it. It's, it is completely madness. And if you miss this completely, I highly advise go and look up the, the video track they did for the album. I forget what it's called, but it's the one where James Hetfield just repeats I Am The Table loads of times. Just just madness, like a concept that couldn't possibly work. If you're gonna get a metal band to improvise with you, you would not get a band that included Lars. Especially Lars in the mid two thousands, like to do that. I just I have no idea where the idea came from and someone should have stopped it before it happened. 
But again, worth a listen on purely pure grounds of I this is amazing. You'll never hear anything quite like it. I have a theory as well, because this year also saw the release of Megadeth's 13, and not that much later we get Megadeth's Super Collider, which is like a real career low for them. 13 I personally found to be an immensely tedious album after the the previous one, Endgame, being fairly good for like modern Megadeth. One of their, probably one of the highlights, other than like that and the latest one, um, both really decent. But Megadeth have this relationship with Metallica, obviously, where... You know, Dave Mustaine is very bitter and twisted about the whole thing. But Metallica have always done this great thing of overshadowing Megadeth doing a really shitty release by releasing something so utterly crazy. Because Lulu was so mad and so terrible that everyone will remember that and forgets that 13 was a bit boring, Super Collider was terrible. There was that whole thing where uh, Dave Mustaine recorded with an orchestra just shredding over the top of it. But none of it was as bad as Lulu. And much like much the same way when Risk came out, it wasn't that long until you had sort of Reload and St. Anger, which was so much worse. Um, yeah, so maybe Dave Mustaine should be a little more thankful. Like Metallica have definitely uh, covered for his, his disappointing moments. But in terms of, I think this was definitely where in terms of my metal development, I had to find new bands, because loads of stuff I'd relied on as kind of staples um, just, like, just didn't have a good year. So Arch Enemy released Chaos Legions, which is their final album with Angela, and I couldn't, I can't remember anything about it. It's such a tedious album, and I think that signaled for me, like, the end of liking that band, really. Symphony X, who I'd previously been very into, released Iconoclast, which, while not a disastrous album, it's a double album, and it just has double album syndrome. It's it's just a bit overblown, and I know they're always an overblown band, but it's just, it just has, it doesn't have as much high-quality material as the albums either, like, kind of either side of it. Um, Hammers of Misfortune released 17th Street, which is by far their weakest album. Oh, a hugely disappointing one for me at this point in time, although many... Many people uh, disagree with me on this one. Uh, Mastodon's The Hunter came out, and I'd been so into Crack the Sky when Mastodon had gone in this more kind of long-form prog direction, like that, that previous album having, like, two ten-minute songs. Then The Hunter comes out, and it's just a kind of disjointed collection of rock songs. While none of it's, like, awful, like, the album doesn't suck by any means, it was a huge disappointment because they'd been getting so kind of interesting in the previous album then just took this direction shift and now you look at their kind of where the career's gone they they're probably never going to go back to that sound again unfortunately some other ones that would just um yeah just not quite there shining released shining seven i believe um this is uh the swedish black metal shining which again was just a bit of a weird album because like shining four through six are incredible and then shining seven is just a little disappointing it it kind of just it's a bit too overblown like stuff like um the albums like one of the songs on the album starts with they they announced they had a guest performance from eric from retain you're like oh this could be a cool crossover and his guest performance is him being choked by (laughs) nicholas from shining at the start of the song and it's just a bizarre weird noise i i I have no idea what they're thinking there. Um, one, I think, uh, 
I'd say divisive. They're definitely the defenders of this, but certainly a point where I realised a band I loved had changed and were not changing back. This is Opeth's heritage, where they finally shed the kind of any trappings of death metal in their sound and decided to become essentially prog rock slash prog metal band. And of the kind of prog rock, prog metal albums of Opeth, I actually really like, particularly Damnation and Sorceress. Even Pale Communion is quite good. Heritage, I've never got my head around. I've always found it just a slightly tedious album. It, it just feels a bit meandering and it doesn't have a coherent flow, which is something Opeth albums normally have really well. Like, they, they have very coherent atmospheres. I felt Heritage just felt... It felt like a collection of, like, offcuts and ideas. Did lead to something I really enjoyed, though. They did a tour following this of just playing the mellow stuff, which I know drove a lot of people um, very angry because they hadn't seen them ever play stuff like Deliverance. But as someone at this point in time had seen them like six or seven times, they played a load of weird stuff. Like I think they played songs like Credence and Benighted off the early albums, and I was so super excited to hear songs I'd never heard them play before. So and didn't actually mind the kind of heavy focus on Heritage Live. It's just yeah, this album. Just not for me in the same way. Another band who I realised I was completely done with at this point is uh, Dream Theatre. So Dramatic Turn of Events came out and this was their first album without Mike Portnoy. So definitely like their time to prove something. And I, it just it just isn't there. And I think it... I don't know how much is there's a problem with this album or it was just the point where I was falling out of love with the band. Like their previous album, Black Clouds and Silver Linings, had been quite disappointing, despite like a very good start and end track. The whole middle of the album is like m between bland and almost unlistenable. And actually, like in hindsight, going back to stuff like Systematic Chaos that like, I really liked as a kid, they're not they're not strong. Like I think Dream Theater in the early two thousands just seemingly lost their ability to write great riffs and catchy build ups and stuff like that, and more focused on the kind of all over the place musicianship. I hear their latest album, self-titled, is it? Well, not latest album. I think they've done a few since, but I hear their the self-titled album is actually pretty decent. My mum was really into it. If you you remember the Mother's Day podcast from uh, a while back, I've never actually given it all that much time. An album that really disappointed me as well, like a black metal band I'd been getting into around the time, is Abzu, and they released their follow-up to their self-titled album, Abzu, the follow-up Abzu, but spelt with a Z rather than. Uh, an S. And this was like a really unfocused album after a really kind of interesting change to their sound with the previous album, the, like the, making this far more progressive, complex kind of sound. Abzu was all a bit all over the place. Like, I, yeah, I just, I, there was just nothing that really hooked me into it. And sort of ending the album on this big, like, 17 minute long song that just sounded essentially like they'd shoved like four or five unrelated three minute tracks together. It was all a bit bit messy. Another two of bands I'd kind of relied on and kind of got hugely into over the years that both kind of disappointed around this time was Haken released Visions, which looking back at it now is by far their weakest release ever. Despite a great 20 minute long closer to the album, the rest of the album is fairly forgettable. And I think it was that thing of they had a brilliant demo to start their career, and then when it got to the debut album, they were able to throw all their ideas together in studio, and it just got to that difficult second album. They just didn't have enough material to to really pull something incredible out of the bag. But then gave it a few years, reassessed the sound, and came back with the mountain 
personally, I think one of their strongest releases, and their follow-up's probably the most popular they've ever done. Like, so, Haken have really gone from strength to strength, they just, just didn't nail things on the second album. Project Hate as well, a band I'm hugely into, released probably... I'd say probably their weakest album ever, Bleeding the New Apocalypse. So again, they had just lost long-time, um, like, female vocalist. Uh, oh, God, I've forgotten her name now. Uh, but yeah, they'd lost their, their vocalist they'd had for, like, about five albums at that point and got a new singer in, and uh, Ruby Rose, I think. And while she was good, the writing just wasn't there. And the Project Hate go this way a lot because they write very long-form albums and occasionally just the riffs aren't good enough or it's just not quite as memorable and when there are these like 60 70 minute long things you kind of uh, yeah you don't want to give them that much time really but anyway that's probably the most negative i've ever been on a podcast but as i say this is the point um buying all those albums in close succession i very much was was thinking oh maybe maybe i'm starting to be done with metal um like it's, it's just something i thought Possibly this is just spun out, but actually it's just a case of I needed to find different bands and in the in putting this episode together I found there was actually a lot of really good stuff I've missed until like a month ago. So let's get on some positive stuff. There was some, some things that really did actually save the year for me of this was a year where we saw a, a really good load of brilliant live DVDs. I, like, I know these are kind of a divisive thing. Some people don't see the point in them because you can just see the bands live. But I think for a lot of people, there's there's certain bands you don't get to see the tours of that often. Or if a band does something really out there, you kind of want that recorded. So one I'm particularly fond of from this time, we've got um, Orphan Lands, Road to Orshalem, which is them doing most of their material off most of their first four albums with some amazing guest performances including Steve Wilson doing like singing a song with them and then doing an acoustic cover of one of their songs they also have like a backing kind of small um kind of folk orchestra as well so there's just like and they actually have the female vocalist on on tour with them or at least like there for this gig and it's just an incredible show it features some just amazing moments if you like if you're a fan of orphan land and haven't seen it highly recommend looking up um the clip for um upon broken vessels which features like kobe doing doing just some incredible stuff kobe the vocalist like he disappears from stage at one point and then reappears like walking through the audience and gets like the entire audience to start jumping and dancing with him and then the camera will turn back to stage for like a bit of a guitar solo and then suddenly he's back there like to start the screams for the really heavy part it's just really kind of magical moment and you know Orphan Land are a band that really thrive in the live setting another one that's utterly fantastic is Shining Release Live Black Jazz which is my my Black Jazz is my like album of 2010, and this is them performing it in its entirety, weirdness and all, and it, it's just an incredible thing to watch them put this together. Ulva released uh, live in concert the Norwegian National National Opera House, which is if you've never seen Ulva, they're a band that do some of the best kind of multimedia in the genre, like the way they sync stuff with these brilliant. Um, visual presentations behind them is spectacular and really yeah so this is highly worth worth seeing i actually saw um saw them on this tour and yeah it was mind-blowing uh, another one less like uh less over the top but just really well played hypocrisies hell over sophia 20 years of chaos and confusion 
really good DVD. So the live set features, like, it is the perfect kind of combination of something great off every single album, so, except maybe they skip Catch-22, I think. But, um, so, so it's this perfect kind of, they play it really well. It's little bits of their entire history. And then there's a great... Um, great dvd uh of loads of interviews like essentially explaining the history of the band it's exactly the kind of thing you want for a band that's been going that long but there's not that much documentation about one that slightly missed the mark uh was mastodon's live at aragon which would be fine like mastodon are great musicians and that but the thing with mastodon is a lot of their live stuff really good but you need like you need to see them in an environment where you can get into like their whole backing like kind of displays and stuff and with this one just having it recorded where you can pour over it like that the vocals aren't good so this is the point where the drummers started doing a lot of vocals and clearly hadn't quite worked out his breathing techniques and so on and just having it immortalized in that level of detail and the vocals are a bit messy it's kind of a shame but you know it's still if you're really into Mastodon I feel still think it's a lot of fun Something else that was really good this year, we saw a lot of great um, albums from the occult rock scene, which is something I'm very into, but I wouldn't chuck them into the countdown, I'm keeping that properly just metal. But we had Orn's The Tree of Life, which features members of Reverend Bazaar, and is quite good, essentially way more mellow prog rock version of Reverend Bazaar. Like, I highly recommend that album if you like their stuff. Blood Ceremony uh, released their second album, Living with the Ancients, which is really, it's a really cool departure from their first one, because their first one very much was in the lead department, driven by the vocalist, with either her sort of vocals or kind of flute and uh, keyboard passages. With this one, they use like lead guitar solos a lot more. So it's got a very different sound to the one before. Like, really, really solid album. But one that just blew out, like, blew everything around it out of the water this year. And probably is my favourite album for this year. We've talked about it at length on the podcast before. This is the Devil's Blood Thousandfold Epicenter, which, if you've got any liking for that kind of occult rock or old classic rock, and you haven't hurt, do yourself a favour, get this album, it is incredible. So let's get into some positive albums that didn't quite make the cut, like best metal albums, but still worth a mention. Uh, we got Benighted's Asylum Cave, which is kind of Benighted chasing a bit more of a commercial metal sound, but certainly still got a lot of catchiness and a lot of groove to it, and it's still a pretty brutal, heavy album. If you'd like any of their stuff, it's still one well worth a go. Uh, one I don't know too well, but as I'm getting more into this band, do need to look up. Um, got Between the Buried and Me, the Parallax, Hypersleep, Dialogues, uh, Cynic released Carbon Based Anatomy, which is an interesting EP where they'd sort of moved away from being a metal band and tried doing something far more rock with a lot more kind of acoustic in instrument influences. It, it's, it's certainly an enjoyable one. Uh, ICS Vortex released a solo album, Stormseeker, which is a weird album. So, ICS Vortex is mainly known for his work with, like, Bortnikar and Dimmy Borgir, and has quite an incredible voice, a very unique sound. This is him doing more of a to-the-point kind of rock album, but something with a lot, kind of rock-slash-metal, but something with a lot of big choruses. And, for the most part, it really works. Crux uh, released their third album, He Who Sleeps Among the Stars, which... If you need more Candlemas-like stuff from Leaf Elding, it's pretty good, but it'll never be as good as Candlemas. That's always kind of been my feeling on Crux. Um, Leviathan released True Traitor, True Whore. A solid enough Leviathan album, but probably not one of their absolute best. 
Mournful Congregation released Book of Kings, which almost kind of got into my countdown, but just wasn't the best funeral doom of the year. Like, it's just a bit overblown. Like, you've got to do something pretty special to justify a 30-minute long song, and I feel these guys don't quite make it. Necros Christos uh, released Doom of the Occult. Really solid album. I, I do really enjoy Necros Christos, but they have that thing I'll never get my head around. If they do the Testimony of Ancient style, uh, like the Pestilence album style thing, of song, interlude song, song, interlude song throughout the album. And for me, it just breaks the flow. Especially when their music isn't even that pretentious. Like, a lot of their sound is very much um, kind of really old school, like, first wave black metal worship. But then they do, like, the weird kind of proggy in interludes. I, it, it's one that I just don't quite understand. I imagine this band would be awesome live. I've never, never managed to catch them. One I think a lot of people were quite fond of, Origin released Entity, which is, you know, if you know Origin, it is a hyper-produced, shreddy nightmare, just maelstrom of shredding bass, shredding guitar, drums at a million miles an hour with low guttural screams over the top. It, it's very cool. Like, the album starts with Explosion of Fury, which is just... just sweeps from hell. Like, it, it is an album that takes a long time to work out what the fuck is even happening. It, it, it's an enjoyable listen, but I don't think I'm ever going to be a huge Origin fan. Again, very good band to watch live. Paul Bearer released, I believe, their debut, Sorrow and Extinction, which is a really epic Doom album. And actually, I think, almost ahead of the curve in this kind of move back to the, like, sort of epic old Doom. Like, if you don't know Paul Bearer and you're into stuff like Chemists, this is definitely, um, definitely one to go look at. And their, their material stayed pretty solid throughout their career. Primordial released the okay redemption at the Puritan's hands. For me, it just sits awkwardly between the two arms either side. Like, To the Name is Dead was this incredible masterpiece. And then um, the next one kind of changed their sound up and did something really new. Whereas Redemption at Puritan's Hands just feels like the offcuts from from the previous ones. It's, it is a solid album, but it's not one I go back to quite as much. Septic Flesh released The Great Mass. Again, just missed out on, on this list. Um, it's strong. Like, what Septic Flesh are doing with the orchestra is very exciting. And it does have some really, really brilliant moments. But... There's something with Septic Flesh where I find I really like their stuff on first listen, but on further delving, it I don't know, it sort of loses its sheen. There's a lot of surface-level epicness, and like, the recording of a real orchestra really helps, but overall, I, I don't love it. Um, one, actually, I've got to thank the listeners for giving me enough options I didn't have to include this in the top 15, because I would have been embarrassed to, but Trivium released what I reckon is their best album ever actually in waves this um this album sees the move from so in their career you know you basically started with ascendancy as when they sort of came to be known doing a sort of very catchy metalcore tinge with kind of thrash then you got the crusade which the one where they sort of sold out and stopped doing the screen vocals for a bit and i think largely not a very loved album of theirs. Then you had Shogun, which was really interesting, because they got heavy again, they took on a lot of prog influences, did a lot of, like, long-form songs, like, massive sweeping guitar solos. 
It's just a bit overblown, though. It's got some really good moments. Then in Waves, for me, is where they just focus it down. They get the songs into short, tighter structures, way catchier, but actually probably more, even more brutal than the previous one because they put kind of... There's less hooks, there's less, like, fancy musicianship. Like, the solos are really tame on this one. Like, they've given themselves very small periods of time to do stuff in. Matt Heafy's vocals are the best they've ever sounded. Like, just the writing of this this album is very strong. It's got a few kind of awkward moments I always find when they go a bit ballady. They're just not for me. But, um, yeah, I, I still find this album very enjoyable. And it's one of the rare metalcore albums I've actually got, got time for. Ulver released uh, War of the Roses as well as their live DVD. It's a very good year for them. War of the Roses, it's a pretty good Ulver album. It's not... I don't know. It's quite short and the last track doesn't quite work. But the moments that do work are, are very mesmerising. And their stuff's always interesting on some level. Because they're always changing their sound up. And a few that... In the death metal realm that just were good but just didn't leave a huge mark. We had Vader's Welcome to the Morbid Reich, which is basically just another Vader album. I gave it a lot of time at the time, but I don't regularly go back to it. Fallon Fire released their debut of Fragile King. So for those who don't know Fallon Fire, they're fronted by Paradise Lost's Greg McIntosh doing screen vocals. Turns out Greg McIntosh has a fucking incredible scream. And this album actually was a sort of, in some ways, a really disappointing album for me. Because when I first put it on, I was like, this is perfect in terms of tone the tone of the guitar like the whole tone of the recording is amazing it it just like touched me on this this level of this is exactly what i want and i like greg's vocals are perfect that is exactly what i want from death metal unfortunately just the writing isn't there like it's just not that memorable and as well there's something odd in um Greg's lyric writing, because he's got quite a clear, understandable voice, his lyric writing on this album is really bad, and it kind of grates after a while. If you're someone who's not bothered by lyrics, you might enjoy this a lot more. And finally, we had uh, Vomitory's Opus Mortis 8, the possibly final Vomitory. Now they've reformed, I don't know. But um, this album is just a solid Vomitory album. I just wouldn't say it's up to the standard of some of their previous ones. Like, tracks like Regorged and The Morgue are... are Excellent, but I prefer Vomitory when they had a bit of a rougher production. But you know, that's that's just me. That brings me on to the top 15 then. So the first number 15 of the year, and this is the one I think it's type seen this on one other is the most recommended by listeners, was Obscura's Omnivium. This is uh, Obscura's third album, so they formed back in 2002. They're a German tech death band for those bizarrely not familiar with them at this point in time and this is an interesting one because this was the final one with their kind of classic lineup when you had christian munzer on lead guitar hannes grossman on drums and uh Jürgen paul fesseling on bass or fretless bass as well um so obscure a band i've always had a bit of a weird relationship with in that they're never quite what I want them to be. But this is definitely the album they got closest. So I used to always sort of take the piss out of them for not being that heavy. And especially you will say Cosmogenesis. It's not a particularly brutal album. And I think Omnivium sorts a lot of those issues actually. There is moments on this album where it is properly punishing. Particularly um the morbid angel worship of ocean gateways it is is very like domination era morbid angel sounding and really got a brutal punch to it. But then there's also a lot of great throwbacks to 
a lot of the early tech death scene, a song like Celestial Spheres really has a kind of um, cynic vibe to it with the added clean vocals. I think um, on the previous album, Stefan had used like a vocode of some of his cleans, but on this he does some proper clean singing. And although it's not incredible, it's, it's a brilliant other texture to the album. And yeah, this, this this album has some really strong elements. Like it opens with some cool like acoustic guitar building into the first first track. Also, it goes almost without saying the level of musicianship on this album is spectacular. These guys are kind of veterans at this point in time, but the the solos are mind-blowing. And it still has that, that kind of really nice Christian Munn's ability to make absolute face-melting shredding still kind of melodic and memorable. And this is brilliant moments of like proper bass solos on this album as well, which really really stand out because every performance is incredible for me i still find it a little overblown and it's never going to be something i truly love but i understand this is a very good album and if you're into more modern tech death this is definitely kind of a highlight of the genre like since this like obscure have gone on to make some still interesting stuff but i, I don't personally think they're ever going to top this one there's some cool kind of guest performances on this we have Tommy Talamanca and Morian of uh, Dark Fortress and Alkaloid both do guest solos on this. Um, the whole thing is engineered and produced by V. Centura of Triptychon and Dark Fortress, among other things. So, you know, it's got a lot of those kind of guys who are in the related scene, and obviously as well, like a lot of these people will end up um, in Alkaloid, which for me is definitely the culmination of the best ideas of Obscura. <laughs>
So number 14 is one kind of outside my usual musical comfort zone. This is Suncaged, The Lotus Effect, released on Lion Music. Suncaged are very well and truly rooted in that sort of prog power slash progressive metal. That kind of somewhere between Symphony X and Dream Theater, you know, got similarities with Haken, kind of got elements as well that would you kind of see in the emerging gent scene as well. So this is their third and final album that actually broke up in 2014. And they have the standard makeup of one of these bands, bass player, drummer, guitarist, keyboards, and vocals. And as is to be expected with this kind of thing, they're all absolutely ridiculous musicians. But what really sells this album is they keep that um, grounded in big, catchy choruses, good riffing, impressive instrumental sections, but not overdone. And the thing I like about this album as well is it's pretty heavy in places. Like, it starts with Seam Ripper, which it starts off very aggressively and, and does that thing a lot of these bands do where... If it wasn't for the kind of slightly cheesier keyboard tone over what's going on, it's going to be pretty hefty riffing. Also, you can kind of see those proto-gent elements of there's a lot of stuff where the the guitar riff and like the bass and guitar locking with the drums doing this kind of heavy chugging. It's just it's before everyone had those Meshuggah 8 strings, so you don't get the, the classic gent tone. It's more of just a solid metal guitar tone. I think for a lot of listeners of this as well, the thing that will be really divisive about it is uh, Paul Villarreal's uh, vocals, which are that very kind of high-pitched, slightly whiny prog metal voice. They're like classic prog metal in that regard. But what I like about Zam is it... Um, it sort of sidesteps a lot of the really shitty tropes of that genre. Like, it is still heavy and aggressive in places. And when it goes into the more melodic moments, they really nail them quite well. There's a lot of there's a lot of clever songwriting going on. The instrumental sections, as I mentioned before, are absolutely brilliant. All the various instruments sound incredible in them. They do this, like, this is one of the showiest things going, but I, I'm kind of a sucker for it of and I think Dream Theater do a lot of this as well, is that kind of um, harmonized shreddy solos where the guitar and keyboard are playing the same thing over each other. But what I like about those moments as well, because both the guitar and keyboard are focused on that, the bass and drums often have this moment to shine of giving us a cool, heavy groove underneath it. And actually, as the thing I find myself engaging with more than the shred fest going on, there's a lot of really great choruses, as I mentioned before. But then there's some interesting ideas as well. Like, the album does quite... So it's a 70-minute long album, like, very overblown and that. But it's something quite interesting in the kind of, like, final third, where rather than going for, like, a massive, um, really long closer, they do loads of little tracks, loads of, like, two-minute weird ideas to just give you something else to kind of hang on to in the second half like something that's been a bit different to everything that's gone before it i would say it's got flaws to it it, it is too long and not all the tracks pay off quite as well as as especially like the first two are really on point and brilliant and then it yeah then it kind of wavers a little but still i say sun cage are one of those bands who I don't know if they're remotely known at all in this scene. I don't know the scene too well, but they've definitely been one I've engaged with far more than anything else outside of, I guess, like Haken and Leprous in the like true prog metal, slightly dream theatre worship uh, category. 
Um, now, they're probably most famous because uh, Marcel Cohen, the guitarist, uh, who is an incredibly talented guitarist, uh, plays live for Aerion and has done a few guest solos where him, but particularly he's on the Theatre Equation DVD doing essentially Arjun's role and the role of a lot of where the guest solos are, and he nails it. He is an incredible guitarist. If you look him up as well, they have the standard thing of any prog power metal band of having the most awkward band photos in existence. There's something about these bands, none of them can do a good band photo, except for Ostura. Yeah, Ostura, the only example I can think of ever in the genre of good band photos. But yeah, the, I'd highly recommend giving this a go, even if you're not normally into this genre, because there is, there's hooks and stuff in it for fans of more extreme music. Although, it, I don't get me wrong, it's not an extreme album. Another, another element I quite like of it is it's a very unique cover. Like, uh, the cover is like a kind of like mad scientist uh, type figure performing some experiment that's causing this explosion of like rainbow colours. It's a really striking album cover, and just, just outside the norm, which... I wish more bands would attempt that, try and find an art style that truly sells them as unique. Whoa! 
2013, we have a band I've made no secret of my love for. This is Vector's second album, Outer Isolation, released on Heavy Artillery Records. Um, so Vector, if you don't know, are a hyper-progressive thrash band. Apparently still active, but more or less fizzled out after album three. So while their debut album, Black Future, was this incredibly well-realized, like, 70-minute-long kind of prog thrash epic that started out really kind of brutal and to the point and then got into more long experimental songs as it went on, incredible instrumental passages, really mind-blowing album. And it was the point as well, like, the lineup kind of solidified coming up to that album and it remained the same for all three of these. Like, you, I think you can kind of see Outer Isolation sits in a weird place, which is definitely the weakest of their three albums. Because the first one was the culmination of all the ideas they had going for their demos. Like, they formed in 2002, like, around that time, it seems. And then that album came out many years after that. Whereas this one doesn't come out that long after it. And it just feels like... Basically, you see the cool genesis of the sound, where the first album is very interesting and melodic in places and outer isolation changes from that and starts going to the kind of sound they'd follow for their kind of final utterly epic uh, terminal redux which is like this huge prog epic which we'll get to in great detail when we come to the 2016 show but this one sits as the awkward middle child it, it's clear they'd burnt all their demo material and needed to come up with a new idea and it's you can see the sound changing. The problem is, I got into this album going backwards. Like, I'd heard Black Future and then heard T Terminal Redux and went to this one third. And it just feels like not quite nailing it as hard as Terminal Redux. Now, I'm being overly harsh. The ideas are like, there's ideas and riffs on this album that, like, no other thrash band had done. This is so inventive. Like, a band finding a new sound in thrash in 2011 is utterly incredible. Um, and it has has some hangovers from the first album that we eventually lose, which I really like. Like, Dave DeSanto's, like, typical high-pitched screaming voice is amazing. But he does this thing on the early albums where he does these ludicrous high-pitched screams. Like, they kind of completely outside what sounds like his own register. And he stops doing them on the final album. I wonder if they were giving his voice some trouble or whatever. But, like, those really add something cool. The actual structure of the songs are these kind of brilliant riff salads, like, kind of just hundreds of elements being thrown at the wall. I think kind of like the first Annihilator album's got some of that going on, where it's all hyper-fast. Um, drummer Blake Anderson is undeniably one of the best modern metal drummers. And sadly, like... Uh, of the three members who quit, uh, Drama Break Anderson, Eric uh, Nelson, and Frank Chin, none of them seem to have gone on to anything else at the moment because they are such good musicians. The musicianship on this album is mind blowing, but it's also it really used to serve the music to just play these hyper technical, creative, fresh riffs, and and somehow still, despite the screen vocals, despite the technicality, still rooting it heavily in fresh metal. The the other kind of difference in this album, the two either side of it, is the songs are more condensed. They've gone for a much smaller kind of like way more like five minute long songs, whereas like the first album tends towards these like twelve minute epics towards the end, and the next album everything's like these eight minute kind of long songs. These are just a bit more condensed, a bit more to the point, except for the opener, Cosmic Cortex, which I'd say personally is like the real highlight of this album. It's still really good stuff, and I think if you're a Vector fan, you have to pick this up just to, you know, 
it's not just completism. This is great music. It's just with those other two albums, they set the bar so incredibly high. And I do think they are, they are like the force of some of the best new Thrash in existence. Like they they convinced me that Thrash still really had legs, which I I joked for years before that Thrash had completely burnt out. 20 years before this but actually there's still something in it and bands like Vector were really paving the way pushing this forward so the way this kind of follows the sound of ter well like pave the way for the sound of Terminal Redux I should say is you start getting more of the kind of overt like blasting from the drums although the drummer like keeps things very interesting does regularly descend in these faster moments um of just like really fast snare work like everything he does is just so complex and quick and then the guitars do a lot of this kind of um kind of almost like halfway to shreddy solos but they're still kind of riffs lots of like holding on one note while like hyper fast picking it while the other guitar locks down like a cool riff rhythm riff and then the vocals over the top are this really quick attack of fast, high-pitched shrieking. You can kind of just make out the lyrics, and as always, um, the whole lyrical concept's based in cool, weird sci-fi stuff. Um, Terminal Redux is the only lyrical one I've delved into and really know what's going on. I yeah, haven't had time to go into this one in great depth yet, but I'm sure it's cool stuff. Like The guy's like lyric writing is utterly incredible, as well as the songwriting. Just everything about it is such a complete package.
that brings us to number 12, and I think the most listener kind of recommended one. Uh, I think first in there was Matthias Jane Brink, uh, among with an amazing list of stuff. Like, a lot of albums I actually never managed to get get around to in the end, but yeah, thanks a lot for those. That's an incredible list, I do need to go back. This is Flesh God Apocalypse's Agony, uh, released on Nuclear Blast. It's their second album of, of now five, actually, the new one coming out soon. And this... Um, leans to a massive stylistic change in the band. So they started out as kind of a tech death band with slight neoclassical influences. And then this album, they brought in um, piano player Francesco Farini as like full-time kind of orchestra writer. And using some complex modern technology, they've managed to overlay all their songs with these synthesized orchestra except uh, like basically and looking at like kind of videos of them recording is incredible just the screen of the number of tracks they have to have for a synthesized orchestra like each song will have like you know you've got your 20 tracks to start with for your drums guitars vocals all that kind of stuff at least and then just another like 70 for all the various little bits of an orchestra like this guy is clearly classically trained and knows how to write music for an orchestra properly and this this kind of change in their sound, I think was I really welcomed. As I say, this is an album I got at the time, and it's one of the ones that didn't disappoint me. It's like, oh, maybe there still is something in metal. Maybe there are bands who are really pushing it forward. Because as well, I'd read nothing about this when it came out. Um, so I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what change was coming for the band. And it's so different to their debut and the, the follow-up EP. It starts with Temptation, which is this huge building kind of... Um, entirely orchestral piece and it's like sort of like two minute long it's actually one of the good examples of a kind of short instrumental intro to an album working perfectly because it builds and builds and builds and then just explodes into the, the hypocrisy the first proper track of the album and so the album then takes up this this running thing of we have utterly like crazed blasting drums throughout most of it like the drum performance is so incredibly fast by uh francisco paoli who is i kind of get the impression he's the band leader he does like backing vocals also records some guitar for it and i think he's the main songwriter um and his drum performance in this is mind-blowing it's like obviously it's like heavily triggered but you couldn't play this fast and it not be. And then we have, like, the kind of guitar attack, which is, at some point, slightly buried under the massive layer of orchestration, but it's still there and heavy and in your face and, you know, just that fast-paced death metal riffing led by um, Cristiano Trenferra's, uh trademark growls like he has a, a very clear distinct but still like guttural and heavy growl and he doesn't although he sort of is one of those vocalists with the one sound because of the other vocalists like almost every member of this band bar uh francisco farini lends some kind of vocals to this album so you have this kind of attack of like hyper fast death metal all overlaid with massive stabs of orchestral kind of pomp so it's always got this kind of epicness that you couldn't really manage without an orchestra and to kind of top that off we have um bass player paolo rossi doing these really high pitched clean vocals which were seen a little bit in the previous two albums but in this they come in as like almost like most of the songs have a chorus of at least his vocals maybe trading off with cristiano's um and they're incredible and then lead guitarist um I'm sorry, I've been getting that wrong throughout. Cristiano is the lead guitarist who's very good. The um, Tommaso Riccardi is the the main vocalist for the band. Um, 
Yeah, but the the lead playing of Cristiano is really good on this as well. He does these really tasteful um, little leads that just like just a great kind of middle eight section for these huge songs. And what really works well with this as well, the the, the album has a good flow because as songs come to a close, they'll they'll have like kind of their program string sections sort of draw out and build up like kind of often quite ominous sounding. Uh, kind of fades through each song and then suddenly you know the next track kicks off like real highlights of this album stuff like uh the violation or my particular favorite the egotism is this incredible epic and introduces something that would soon become a staple of the band so it has this brilliant kind of it's one of the faster tracks and has these brilliant trade-off between the bass player and main vocalist, like Clean and uh, Screamed. And then in the middle section, we uh, get the guest vocals of Veronica, who's now like a permanent live member of the band, who's this super high-pitched, very operatic singer. And it does this great thing where she just like builds up this huge thing in the middle eight with her like ludicrously powerful voice and as she hits the last note the guitar solo comes in and like harmonizes that last note and then goes into a cool shreddy solo and when that's done suddenly the riffs just kick in and the drums go like just like hard to comprehend quick and it's just like, a big powerful end to an album yeah like agony was a real surprise to me like i wasn't expecting the band to change in this way. I've said before, it's not actually my favourite of theirs, but I've got to commend a band for totally reinventing their sound in this way. And although I prefer their earlier tech dev stuff, this was the start of their live show becoming the incredible thing it is now. Like, the costumes were then there. They had the guest opera singer there as well, and the actual, like, piano out on tour with them. And they, they kind of, you know, do that really good thing of not having to rely on the backing track too much because they add extra piano and extra operatic vocals to kind of mimic where the backing track would be. So it's not, it's not guys just playing to a click track as much as it could be. Um, this album does have some flaws, certainly. Um, the the mix, you can clearly tell, is utterly bursting at the seams. Like, they just do not have the space to, like, get everything they want in there. And there's a slight problem, which they sort of do fix in later albums, of the guitars getting a little buried under the more interesting... Um, symphonic passages like often the guitars come to the fore and do some really cool stuff but there's certainly tracks where I, I could not tell you what a guitar was doing because it's just it's just not really audible the other thing we sort of have which is a shame is towards the end of the album it kind of tails off the last two proper tracks are not particularly interesting and then we get another piano outro in the form of the title track agony which is fine, but it just, because the album's kind of slowed down and it's not as catchy or as engaging as it was earlier, I, I kind of, I find myself never really getting past track seven. Also, they do something unacceptable in this album, and it's just like, much like Lulu, it's such a bad idea on paper, I have no idea how this made it to studio. They do a cover of Carcass's Heartwork, which is quite a straight-up cover like their At The Gates cover on their previous EP, except for they put a whole orchestra over the top of it, and... Obviously, Carcass with an orchestra layered over the top of it sounds horrible. But yeah, it's just a really awkward moment. But the highs of this album, particularly the egotism, uh, the hypocrisy, uh, the violation, are so, so good. And that intro, the way it builds, is perfect. It just probably would have been a really great seven-track album had they just toned it down closed it a bit earlier. But it's an amazing new chapter for the band, and... I'm so happy they kind of went in this direction. And this kind of sound is what's turned them into an 
absolute force of a live band. Actually, this is the first Grind album I've ever covered, and there's going to be a bit of a trend in this list later. Of turns out a lot of what was really good this year was the Grind albums. So this is Wormrot's second album, Dirge. Uh, Wormrot formed in 2007. They're a Singapore-based Singapore, Singapore grind trio, and they're actually one of the heavier bands still on Earache Records. Not quite sure how that ended up working out, because I kind of thought this time Eric were done with that kind of grind. And they are grind in that exactly how you picture it grind. They're a free piece of drums, guitar, and vocals. No bass. Um, like, just that pure attack. None of their songs clock in above the two-minute mark, especially not on these first two albums. Um, and the vocals are that twin thing of half really kind of brutal shouting, that kind of low 
boom, the kind of Barney from Napalm Death sound, and half really high-pitched shrieks. Um, much like with Napalm Death, the backing vocals do a lot of that, whereas this um, vocalist, Arif, just does it all. And he is a powerhouse of a vocalist. Such a huge, aggressive voice. And this album is just such a to-the-point bludgeoning. It's 25 tracks, less than 20 minutes long. And yes, uh, running theme, so we don't have further debates on this. If it's a grind album, I accept any length as being an album, whereas for most bands, if it's under half an hour, I wouldn't call it an album. But, you know, that's that's a debate uh, <laughs> I, I, we, we could possibly have, I guess. But with this album, it starts so perfectly as well with um, the opener, No One Gives a Shit, which is just this kind of... The guitar tone's really good. It's this really brutal, solid distortion tone. I don't know how it has so much bass in it without there being a bass player, but... So it comes in with just, like... It's just a couple of huge chords ringing out, and then suddenly it bursts into compulsive deposition, the first proper track. But like that eerie build-up of those chords, and then a hyper-blasting like grind music. Like most of this album is like completely to the wall, like so so quick. But the thing Wormrock get right, and I think you have to as a grind band, is there's a lot of groove and catchiness mixed in with the absolute chaos. Like, yes, it's hugely violent and in your face and crushing, but it's also memorable. It's also like proper bang your head music. Like most songs will resolve into some kind of like some kind of really catchy memorable riff like it's it's an album i certainly remember a lot of i mean there's completely ridiculous moments like like fucking fierce so what which is five seconds long as a you barely notice it's happened but the album has a really good flow it doesn't outstay it's welcome at all it's like it is just like this is a band who i think their entire discography is under 80 minutes but you get what you need from them at a time like with these kind of songs, there's a lot of variation, there's a lot of good changes of the pace, and the way they build into the really fast blasting sections works amazingly. And when I say build into, I mean, obviously, it's like a two-second build-up. But they do a lot in that two seconds. Um, guitarist Rashid is a, a brilliant player and really does a lot. Like He's got to be commended for the tone he managed to get because he has to lead the band in a lot of ways because outside of him, there's no melody at all. Um, and there's not much melody to be had in this album. So Dirge for them as a band sits as much like with Vector that I Outer Isolation is kind of the awkward middle child of Abuse is the super aggressive, brutal first one. Dirge is very much the follow-up in a similar vein, and then Voices, which, again, we'll get to in 2016, is a kind of masterpiece where they brought sort of melody in. At this point, that wasn't going to happen. This is very much your traditional grind with no frills, nothing extra, but just done perfectly like somehow as late to the party as Wormrot are with grind they've made themselves kind of household name in that that genre and with Turge being their weakest album and still being this good you can kind of see why <laughs>
This brings us to a very interesting album, um, actually a double album in some ways, and actually it's it's low on this list at number 10 because of its double album nature. This is the Devon Townsend Project with Deconstruction slash Ghost on Inside Out Music. Now, um, this came out to quite massive fanfare. I think this was around the point where Devon Townsend was getting very big, and with Deconstruction in particular... It like it were actually both albums he did something to really draw attention to the Devon Townsend project after chipping along some really solid albums, particularly like Key, um, a couple of years before this. Like he'd certainly started garnering a fan base, but this is the point where he, I think he was about to explode into like stratospherically big, like you know Royal Albert Hall filling big. So let's explain what's going on here with. With Deconstruction, we get one of his most out-there albums ever with guest performances from some of the most famous and well-respected vocalists and guitarists in the, the, the general genre of progressive metal. And then the second half, Ghost, is um, to be charitable, his attempt at world music. It's... Um, like the reason I put it lower on this list because I've accepted those two as being one double album rather than two separate albums... Um, my reaction to Ghost was because I saw all these positive reviews of it, and and friends really like it. Um, but it flew totally over my head. Like, yes, Devin Townsend is a great singer and can do these kind of melodic songs, but they are so cheesy and nothingy. Um, I remember at the time I, I started listening to it because I didn't really know what to expect. I just heard he'd done this very melodic album, and I put it on and just I couldn't get my head around it. And I sent. Um, I sent a link to like a song for it to my girlfriend, and her description was like, oh, "This sounds like elevator music without the pan pipes." And then got a message back from her a minute later, going, "Oh no, the pan pipes have come in now." And that's kind of my entire kind of thing with ghosts. It just sounds like someone attempting, and it, like, I guess Devin is a kind of character who does this, but someone attempting a genre they don't really know a great deal about, and because of their musicianship and the fact they've got access to incredible studio equipment, etc. He does, like, a fairly good hash of it, but it's just, it's not something I'll ever go back to. I've listened to Ghost. I don't think I've ever actually got to the end of the album either. It just, it, it will never be for me, and as such, I can't put this album higher on this list. So, that being said, let's get to Deconstruction. Deconstruction, I fucking love. It is the album of all of Devon Townsend's that's spoken to me the most. And probably... This is partially due to having so many guest performances from people I hugely respect and that on it. Like, that was such an obvious way to win me around to Devon Townsend. Because actually, this was my, like, first proper delve into a sound where, like, I'd given an album a lot of time. Um, so what, what Deconstruction is, is him trying to... I guess to an extent recapture some of the strapping young lad madness. It's it's certainly of the DTP albums by far the heaviest he ever did. And it's completely overblown. It is as overblown as it could possibly be. It's it's that kind of thing of there's few people in the genre of metal I'd like to give a bigger budget to than Devin Townsend. Because although he's not my favourite songwriter out there, he is someone when given a big recording budget and given the tools to make something he will make something so out there and weird and something that no one could recreate so not only is it this hyper complex metal album it has the city of prague philharmonic orchestra doing the backing for it like uh, an orchestra i think you've done some work with a lot of other metal bands but yeah it's got them doing a lot of backing to it but it's not like the flesh called apocalypse kind of neoclassical this sa still sounds like a hyper modern aggressive extreme metal album album 
There's guest vocal performances. You have Michael Ackerfeld on the second track, Stan, doing backing, like, screams, but, like, mixed low in the background, which is a weird way to use a guest performer, but actually works really well. Like, he does work very well as a backing vocalist. The next track, Jeweler, the big single of the album, with this weird umpar beat, we have Ishan screaming his lungs out, kind of paired with Devon's brilliant clean singing. And this album features just Devon Townsend really going off the rails, like, vocally, trying so many strange and over-the-top things. I think as well, there's, there's an element to this album where the whole thing is a massive joke, like, and it somehow, like, lives in this weird realm of being hyper-serious and complex and over the top, but being kind of funny and stupid and self-aware in a way that only Devon Townsend is, and I can see people find that highly obnoxious, but personally I love it, like, Planet of the Apes, like, the, the kind of live staple from this album, um, it's all based around this central refrain of uh, we have lots of power to influence, but we all rip off Meshuggah. And it's based around these kind of sugary, chugging, kind of heavy riffs. Um, and with even, like, there's some guest guitar work on the album from Frederick of Meshuggah. Um, and I remember live, like, uh, when, when he played this, he did, like, one time I saw him, he had, like, Ziltoid, I think, on a backing video introducing it, like, just taking the piss out of Frederick's guitaring, being like, oh, that's not music, that's just annoying noises. But this album, this this song goes from these brilliant kind of heavy Meshuggah moments into these absolutely beautiful soaring melodies, um, really melodic stuff. And, but then Devin Townsend, like, ruins it by being so stupid and I never noticed this lyric until actually I was review like revisiting at length recently where there's a bit where he's singing in one of these really happy joyous passages like I'm so happy it's given me a tiny boner which is very much the tone of this album it's all over the place it's so it's so silly it's so massively silly but it's so creative and weird I like I'm having trouble like summarizing what happens in any song because they're so overblown and complex. Like, the say how Flesh Gone Apocalypse mixed with, like, straining at the seams. This somehow isn't. Like, there's a million and one elements, and Devin Townsend's very slick modern production kind of captures it all. Like, in as much as I'm not always the biggest fan of how he produces and mixes albums, he has nailed this one. Also, talk, like, lending to its kind of complexity and creativity, um... RVP, uh, the usual DTT, D, too many acronyms, sorry. The usual Devon Townsend Project drummer, RVP, only drums on about half this album because the songs are just too complex. He had to get Dirk Van Bulen in of, well, currently of Megadeth fame, but also, you know, a million and one awesome projects. And Dirk um, is one of the better drummer out, drummers out there in metal. He can do anything, it seems like. He can play so complexly, so fast, um, and then you need someone like this to hold this together because the music is so out there and strange. Um, the album's real centre point, and weirdly kind of feels like it should have been the last track, but it is right in the middle of the album, is The Mighty Masturbator, um, which I'm sure is a reference to how Devin sees this album as a, this kind of completely self-indulgent um, nightmare. But it's this huge song that starts out with all this weird, all-over-the-place melodic section, and then it has this section in the middle that is described being like that really shitty rave scene from the second Matrix, where um, we have the vocalist of Dillinger's Escape Plan leading this giant chorus of voices... Um, 
we I think I watched a video of Devin explaining the concept of this song and it's just sci-fi madness but leading this giant chorus of voices negotiating with this alien race while doing this huge huge rave over this kind of repeating keyboard melody and like the kind of the vocals on this track are so cool they're so all over the place and then the song finally ends descending into Ziltoid the Omniscient leading this stupid carnival where he's just being gratuitous and disgusting and like just really strange narration uh, finally culminating in his realization that he's the mighty masturbator and then a massive choir surge of amen at the end uh, it's it's wonderful it's so stupid it's so over the top but i just thoroughly enjoy it um then we have the moment that is like probably the step too far for most people but i kind of love this as well uh the title track deconstruction is the most out there weird thing i think he's ever written um my friend Gareth, who's a huge uh, Devin Townsend fan, described this album as being the most drug music album written by a sober person. And th this album does capture so much of that madness like Strapping Young Lad used to have. And Deconstruction is the point where that really happens. Like, it's clearly a play on deconstructing concepts and so on. And it's based around the central refrain of like, deconstructing a cheeseburger to its constituent elements but like also just descends into like farting noises and obscenities over some of the most complex hard to follow music like this album really features a lot of Devin just like shredding lead guitar which we don't get so much of in a lot of his other stuff like he's really doing some wild riffing and out there playing and the drummer Dirk on this track is really having to work to keep up with what's going on and just to perfectly kind of seal off this madness the guest vocalist on this track is um Dave Brocky or Odus Sharungus uh, sadly now deceased vocalist of Guar and there's nothing better for a song essentially tacking the heart of how we feel about metal and so on than having Guar do it it's just I think it's just kind of perfect I get it's obnoxious I get it's really silly but it works for me in so many ways. And there's really cool other guest performances I haven't really had a chance to go into. We get Joey Duplantia of Gojira's on it. Uh, Floor Janssen's on it. Like, this is just such a star-studded album. It really... It, there's some mind-blowing stuff going on there. And it's well worth a listen if you can try and get into it and try and get your head around it. I get it's not for everyone. And I think Devin himself doesn't really like it that much anymore. But for me, I, I do think it's a masterpiece. I do think it's really quite incredible it's just as it would be a lot higher on this list but unfortunately the pairing with it and ghost kind of i have to judge it as a full album unfortunately and ghost just isn't for me but this is some of the most out there kind of sounds you're gonna hear and i i love devon being in this position where he's now recognized enough and makes enough money out of what he's doing to put together stuff that is this out there this mad this just ambitious
Right, just to give you even more genre whiplash, number nine is Wolves in the Throne Room Celestial Lineage. Uh, this is their fourth album, so Wolves in the Throne Room formed back about 2002, and a like by this time were a massive staple of the um uh like american black metal scene doing this kind of very true very earthy kind of almost natural sounding black metal for some reason like this used to be an album of theirs i was obsessed with and i'm going back to it a lot for this um for this segment i i don't love it quite as much as i used to it's still an absolutely brilliant album but i don't know for some reason it wasn't connecting quite as much as it did before but don't let me put you off. This is still one of their better albums. This is like has all the elements that make um, Wilson from incredible. Like the album starts off with these very melodic, very natural sounding kind of. It's, it's I guess it's like synths and acoustic guitar kind of stuff with um, clean female vocals over the top of it, and then builds into their more blasting, very loose black metal. With, with Wilson from they do a cool thing of like. Yes, the double kicks are really quick, but they're not perfectly synced in time. This is all... It's, this is as messy as playing this very fast music should sound. And, well, should sound when you're going for that kind of thing. I, I get the Flesh Got Apocalypse angle as well. Like, both make sense in a lot of ways. But, yeah, with this album, they just, just so many things they nail on it. Like, the drum sound is fantastic, uh, very natural sounding. The guitar tone is that brilliant lo-fi black metal but where the riffs are still audible it's still there um the kind of cleaner elements have an amazing melancholy to it and really really evoke a lot of emotion and actually the heavier elements evoke a lot of emotion as well the album although seven tracks long is basically based around four proper songs like four um for kind of like almost 10 minute long epics like Wilson from music it always seems to be this like very big building kind of sound like spending a lot of time getting one riff together and slowly moving into newer elements and with that they can really hammer home like the emotions and, and it, it's a very emotional album like much like all their stuff um so, Walton Throne Room was just made up of the two brothers, Aaron Weaver and Nathan Weaver, who, between them, play... Well, Aaron's mainly known as the drummer, but also does some guitars, keyboards, also credited with field recordings on this, and vocals. And Nathan, I think, is the lead vocalist, guitar like main guitarist, but also does keyboard, Mellotron, and additional field recordings. So, with this album, you've got that kind of... Um, there's a lot of, like, nature sounds in the background, so clearly not synthesised. They actually just went out in the woods and uh, and recorded stuff. Um, there's, like, definitely a seal of approval for some, some kind of big people in the scene. Um, Aaron Turner of Isis, Old Man Gloom, etc., does some guest vocals on this. And we also get guest synthesizer and guest organ from two members of the incredible, strange musical collective, the Master Musicians of Bukaki, who are like this kind of American hyper-experimental rock outfit. Um, they, if you don't know them, look up some of their live stuff online. They do these, they, they always wear these incredible costumes and do these very atmospheric out there sets. But yeah, having those guys involved in this, like you can actually see, although... They're certainly not a black metal band. Like there is, there's some connection between the sounds at play here, and there's also a bit of like harp and string playing on this album. So there's a lot of there's a lot of other textures beyond just the guitar and drums kind of element of black metal. But 
that is still the core of it. And like between the kind of main tracks, we get a lot of um, sort of instrumentals bridging them. And it, the album has a great flow to it in in that sense. The album cover is very much fitting with Wolf's normal aesthetic of um, a very natural kind of uh, outdoors image of something. You can never really tell what's going on in their covers, but they're kind of beautiful in their own way. Also, like I love Wolfson's Throne Room for rather than having an unreadable logo, they have a logo that just literally isn't their name. But <laughs> we've all come to kind of <laughs> recognise that symbol as the band symbol. Um, yeah, they, they are they are a really brilliant band, and I really love what they're doing here. This is definitely a sort of continuation of I'd say that they kind of got their sound together on their second album, Two Hunters. Black Cascade was good, but not as good as Two Hunters, and then this was the next kind of real high point for them in their career. Then they kind of disappear off the cliff with the album after this, where they just do a kind of like entirely synthesizer kind of electronic album, which sailed so far over my head, but they now seem to be back doing what they do best.
next album we're covering at number eight is Rotten Sounds Cursed, um, released on Relapse Records. So this album I'd actually completely missed. Um, it was recommended us by Chris Wilson of Punishing Brutality, who I have no idea if he actually listens to this or not, but whatever. Uh, thanks, Chris, for that. Like, this is an absolutely storming Death Grind album. So Rotten Sound are bound, I'm quite fond of but i just somehow had missed that out this album their catalogue it's a sixth album of seven and i think they're still very much uh going and rotten sound are one of the real best at that kind of death grind sound so the only band i think who do this kind of sound better are nasm which their vocal is actually briefly fronted after nasm singer sadly passed away in a tsunami um and as such, like Rotten Sounds, now essentially the kings of this. Like the this is very different to the worm rot take and grind. Like death grind is quite a different beast. So you got longer songs, you got bass guitar. There's far more slower elements. There's guitar solos. There this is, but this is still in your face, incredibly brutal kind of punk and hardcore turned up to eleven essentially. The thing this this album gets so right is the tone is horrible. It's so grimy and disgusting, but yet still clear. You still you still get pummeled by the riffing. Um, their vocalist is a powerhouse. His his delivery is so intense and punishing. Everything about this is incredibly brutal and over the top. Uh, and it's just under half hour runtime, you're just completely beaten into the floor. They have a fun thing going on of every track is like just one, ne like the title is one negative word, like alone, scared, doomed, terrified, like hence cursed. But just everything about this is just laser focuses to destroy you uh, and and the moments where they break away from that where they do a more groove orientated riff or a like kind of short solo section these hardly give respite because the whole thing is still just the, the tone of it and the aggression of it is still super punishing um we've got some cool stuff as well there's like guest performances by LG Petrov um, and Jason Everton of Mystery Index uh, doing additional vocals, loaded like guest uh, guitar solos as well, and it's just more more textures to throw in there, just more things to pummel you with. But definitely, I would say this is now my favorite Rotten Sound album. Only given like a month for it. it, it was one of those things. I think I was sold on it within the first minute of the opener alone. It just there's something about the sound is perfect um, and and the riffs are there to back that all up but when you get the tone that right and then there's nothing that happens in the album that takes away from it there's no there's no kind of misses at all it it is just perfectly exercised grind <laughs> Stay. 
And number seven uh, is an album I've, like, two albums, in fact, that I covered at great length recently, so I'm going to skip straight through them. This is Bluetooth Nord's 776 and 77 Desanctification, the first two of the 77 series. I've kind of lumped them in as one, like, I, I don't know if I'll bring back the third in the next countdown or not, but... Uh, go back to my episode on French black metal if you, you want to know more about these incredibly atmospheric, beautifully executed um, kind of solo project black metal. Well worth a look if you ha- have any kind of love for the scene. Now, so we're going to number six, complete more genre whiplash. We have the second Fresh album this countdown and another one I found much, much later. This is Deceased's um, seven album, Surreal Overdose, released on Shrieks from the Hearse which is going to be one of the better uh, label names out there. So Deceased are, like, properly old-school thrash metal. Formed in 1985, they've been going forever, mainly led by uh, King Fowley, a vocalist and drummer, um, uh, guitarist Mike Smith, not to be confused with the hundreds of other people called Mike Smith, and Les Snyder on bass with, in more recent years, Shane Fugel completing the lineup as second guitarist. And what Deceased do is that kind of... That thrash that borders on, like, proto-death metal. Like, King's vocals, I find, really reminiscent of Dismember's vocalists. That kind of sort of semi-growl, but it's still quite clear and still almost got, like, an element of melody to it. And what they do in these relatively long-form for thrash songs, like the opening to the album, Skin Crawling Process, is about seven, seven minutes long, and goes for a lot of movements. And most of it is just balls to the wall, like really fast shreddy thrash like loads of guitar solos like i think that song alone has like five solos in it but there's just certain things this band gets so right the tone's fucking excellent the riffs are so good yeah this is inventing nothing new but i think for a band still doing thrash at this point in time and making an album this incredibly solid is really impressive just on that level they do some cool things as well like um they throw in a few, like, almost slightly atmospheric moments. They have bits where a song will um, have moments of, like, clean tone guitar and slightly kind of weird off-kilter elements. Stuff just makes, like, actually a bit creepy. Like, the, the aforementioned first track, Skin Crawling Progress, has these kind of, this, like, kind of creepy instrumental breakdown and then just comes back into blinding, like, shredding thrash metal. The solos are really good. They're they're tasteful, but they're also, you know, face melters and they're catchy. It, it just works really well. There's a lot of really big um, choruses to this album. Stuff like Cloned Day of the Robot has like this really memorable chorus particularly. And also the lyrics are quite engaging as well. They're all this kind of like slightly sci-fi dystopian kind of negative sort of political stuff. It's, it's just really proper you know, standard thrash metal topics but just done well. Like, King Farley's lyric writing and vocal delivery are absolutely excellent. Um, th- yeah, it's it's just an album I can't really say anything bad about. It just does this kind of sound so right. If you're looking for something that is that kind of proto-death uh, metal thrash, that kind of not-quite-possessed-but-getting-there level it's not as heavy as that it's definitely more melodic but it's still a pretty heavy album like this isn't something you could you if you got a mate who's really into metallica this will probably be a step too far for them it's still kind of brutal in that regard and i just can't believe a band are this good who have been going for that long who are like because this i'd say does top say 
particularly like the weaker moments of later Exodus, like the Atrocity Exhibition, where they got a bit overblown. This is better than that. These guys are definitely kind of leading the the crowd in terms of an old fresh band who are still really nailing it. Um, yeah, eight albums into their career. us to my favourite Doom album of the year and this is well and truly true funeral Doom at this point. This is Esoteric's sixth album and six of six so far although they're still together. Paragon of Dissonance released on Seasons of Mist. Esoteric are a band, um, they formed in 1992, they're an English band and have been around for a very long time mainly led by vocalist and guitarist Greg Chandler who's also fronts the kind of quite unique black metal band Lichgate. Um, this is a double album, but it's a double album that justifies it. Like, this and the predecessor, uh, both, both are about seven tracks long, uh, around kind of an hour and a half long, and it, it works being split over two discs, there's not that much fat that needs trimming. There is something I have an issue with, but I'll get to that a bit later. So what Esoteric do, and this is properly like the core of their sound, is it's experiments in getting really, really slow. So some of their drum beats will be properly like boom, 
that kind of level, which is almost unheard of in metal, but over that, they were doing these massive, dirty, disgusting guitar chords. They do a lot of well um, to like kind of fill out that sound. They have this strange, like swirling kind of electronic, distorted noise over a lot of their stuff, and and like because the guitars are so distorted and played at such a slow pace, and Greg's vocals are this huge, like like level of screaming which i think he puts a lot of reverb on all these noises together give this kind of like claustrophobic like almost like very full atmosphere there's a lot happening it's very hard to get a good handle on what any of it is um so the drum the the, the drum the the kind of the makeup of the album uh like the lineup of this album is we also a bass player drummer and guitarist and keyboard player as well as Greg Chandler, the guitarist Jim Noland joined new for this album, and Mark and Joe, the bass player and drummer, both were on the previous album as well. Which I say the previous album is like probably like my one of my favorite Funeral Doom albums ever, uh, but this one is also highly up there. The, so the difference with this is the, the real change between the two. The the predecessor Maniacal Veil uh, had this kind of real heavy kind of sound to it it was very much um these great build-ups like the songs are even longer on that album like some of them approaching the 20 minute mark whereas these rarely cross 15 still huge and but it, but they kind of justify not only by the slowness but the the amount of changes in any given song so the the change of sound i was kind of alluding to is in this we suddenly have loads of lead guitar there's stuff which would definitely be described as guitar solos although very much used as part of the builds in a lot of this stuff um whereas the previous album had none of that uh to say the opener abandonment is it's quite a mesmerizing song, like almost 14 minutes, and it sort of builds up for his very heavy. Like Greg's vocals, he's one of my kind of favorite vocalists. Um, does these great guttural super lows with all this reverb as well, but then can do these like higher shrieks that that kind of get lost in the mix and create this amazing atmosphere. So a lot of that going along over these very slow, very heavy chords, and then but they just at the right moment things will get fast. You'll get like double kick sections like really quick drumming where they just built and then like you kind of you're waiting for something to happen and there's the huge release of like a blasting section but then in the second half of the song we get this like very melodic riff like really kind of clean tone riff with like this lovely really memorable memorable lead guitar passage over the top that just comes out of nowhere like it, it's so alien to what the band normally sound like but it perfectly moves into it and it still has this kind of swirling chaotic noise behind it so it kind of makes sense that it it's really kind of mind-blowing stuff like Jim Lowland's guitar playing on this album is really impressive like the solos he's written so perfectly fit the music and it's the only album he's ever recorded on according to Metal Archives which it amazes me um yeah so there's a lot of other cool stuff going on. There's a lot of like keyboards and stuff used to great effect, but just like subtly in the background, little passages, just adding something else in certain segments. Um, we have an amazing track towards the end of disc one, a non-being, which has this, it's one of my favorite kind of lead guitar moments of, it is essentially a five minute build up that is just like a solo over the top of this, like this swooping melodic, just utterly beautiful piece of guitaring and then the second disc is 
a bit less all over the place in the first. The first is a lot of different ideas, whereas, like, say, non-being does like, a beautiful solo build-up and then goes into the slowest, heaviest moment of the album, like, sort of just, like, switches suddenly from absolutely beautiful to kind of impenetrably disgusting and slow. The The second half of the album uh, is only three songs, each about 15 minutes long, and they're all more, more structured, I'd say, more clearly what you would expect from an esoteric song, but still with this occasional elements of great lead guitar playing. It's hard to explain a lot of what's going on in this album because it is so complex and impenetrable. And what esoteric you really get down is that kind of thing you want from Doom where the overarching thing is a, a kind of the an emotion of just total despair, like that kind of feeling of like true bleakness these guys nail in a way few other bands can they're up there with like ahab and evoken um in terms of just complexity and and just beauty like that it was it must be so hard to play like this like uh the the drum playing is so slow but so precise i don't i don't know how a drummer or, or any member of the band for that matter can keep time at that speed you must need to be like such an internal metronome to do it. Fortunately, I've never managed to see this band live. I'd really love to, to see if it, you know, comes across like this. And just to see Greg's, like, utterly mind-blowing vocals. Now, the one thing I will massively criticise this album for, because it, it, it's completely unnecessary and I don't know why they do it, there's quite a few tracks in this that have that kind of, like, distortion fade-out, which, you know, it's a staple of metal. A lot of bands do that, that kind of guitars feeding back. I think it's in an abandonment, the first track. It goes on for almost a minute and a half. And a couple of the other tracks have moments like this. There's about five minutes of this album, which is just feedback. Like, pretty much nothing else. And I'm assuming they were going for something with this, but whatever it was, it doesn't quite come off. It doesn't quite work. And and it just results in... Like, I find when I'm listening to this, I regularly skip track. I get to the end of the song, but in terms of actual musical content, and there's another minute, so I just skip on to the next one, which gives it a slightly stuttering flow. But I also... It's an hour and a half long album. Like I find with esoteric stuff because of the double discs, I often rarely listen to the second disc that much because I rarely have an hour and a half uninterrupted to listen to music. I normally get about an hour in and have to do something else, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, the, these kind of like that added five minutes is like you, you're already you know into a sizable double album. You just don't need that. But the, the, realistically, that's nitpicking. So much of what going what's going on here is incredible. There's such kind of amazing dives into melody and atmosphere and just what can be done in terms of horrendous distorted noise like if you're new to funeral doom never given this go i think this album actually more so than their previous one might be the way in like, like elements like the lead guitar might just be that hook you need to give this genre a go and give it the time required to get your head around it
some reason, since it's like playing uh, esoteric, the weather is utterly foul outside. I hope that pouring rain isn't too audible on the recording. But anyway, move away from the slow and heavy to the fast and even heavier. So this band is another one that I discovered very recently. This is the um, American Grind uh, five-piece, Gridlink. Uh, this is their second of three albums, Orphaned, released on Hydrahead Record. Um, they were active from 2004 to 2014. And what Gridlink sort of did was found a niche of something new in Grind. They, they feature members of quite a few different bands, a lot of them I'm completely unaware of, but uh, two members in particular from Discordance Axis who were, you know, at the time, very, very creative in Grindcore and doing something quite new. And I feel Gridlink took some of those ideas and went even further. So what we get with this, the album is 12 minutes long as well. 12 songs, 12 minutes long. It uh, got a lot of similarities with uh, Worm Rot in certain ways, but it's not quite as traditional as that. I say not quite, so it's totally not. It throws the rule book out the window in terms of what you do with Grind. So it's led by John Chang with his very high shrieking over-the-top vocals, Really powerful stuff. Um, the lyrics seem to be very conceptual and sci-fi, uh, which again quite out there for. It's sort of, I guess, it's still kind of political, but it's very much rooted in sci-fi kind of stuff. And the playing is mind-blowing. The drums are so fast. The guitar work is what really sets it apart from a lot of other stuff, though, because the riffing is actually like almost like lead guitar and melody-driven, but it's played so fast that. It still has that grind intensity, but it's grind intensity played on like the really high strings, and I think that's where where kind of um, Gridlink sort of pushed themselves out there. Their third and final album goes even deeper into the kind of melodic, and is a fascinating one, which we will get to. But Orphan is just like punishing throughout. There's not a song that crosses the one minute thirty mark, but everything is played at such incredible pace and such incredible intensity. The armor has this real live feel as well because um among other things, like each track starts with the counting, like the the kind of stick tapping counting, which just gives this feel like you're in a room being bludgeoned by this band doing this live. The playing spectacular like another interesting thing to get this kind of full sound is they have two guitarists and a bass player like a five-piece grind band i can't think of another one um because maybe something like agoraphobic nosebleed but you're doing something completely out there as well the the kind of song structures are hyper complex like moving through a lot of different riffs in like that time span and it is one of those things where 12 minutes is enough like that it, it so much happens it is almost like sickening and the the pace of it, I know I keep going on about it, but the pace of it is mind-blowing. And like the guitar work, the drum work, everything is so complex. And I'm really struggling to almost put my finger on why this is such a unique sound. But nothing sounds like Gridlink. Uh, and I think it is that element of there's some kind of more melody in there. Sort of. But it's still it it but then it sounds more this this album sounds more aggressive than say Dirge we covered earlier to me. It sounds more possibly not as quite as kind of nasty as cursed from uh, Rotten Sound, but still up there. And there's something really mind blowing about this. And I, I love that at this point in time bands were still finding something new you could do within grind, which is, you know, a much maligned genre. There are many I sort of brought this up before, but there's a lot of people who genuinely act like 
grind is a genre anyone could play. And, and I'd like to show them those kind of people, albums like Orphan, to prove that grind is not just meat-headed stupidity. There's There's a lot of very intelligent writing and stuff going on in it. that somehow on an episode that was basically a year I didn't really like I've somehow gone really long so I will speed through the final three albums so we're not here all day with this uh, number three is New Zealand's Ulcerate with The Destroyers of All released on Willowtip Records this is their third album of five Ulcerate essentially tech death in the atmospheric artificial brain later gore guts that kind of sound version of of technical death metal they you know no wankery here, this is all about terrifying noise. So, Ulcerate for the entire career have been a free piece of um, drums, guitar, and bass player slash vocalist, who, and also, like, all, um, everything's done here, so they do all the mixing, engineering, all that kind of things. Um, the real standout centerpiece of um, Ulcerate is their drummer, Jamie St. Murat, who is a mind-boggling drummer. I've seen him perform live, and I can't explain what's happening. He runs around the kit with such, like, such complexity and such, like, ever-changing nature. He he doesn't seem to do anything close to locking down a beat. It's all, like, whole songs are essentially strings of drum fills, whereas the guitar work over the top is just lots of very complex chord shapes, um, making this very hideous noise, and then Paul Kelland, the bass player slash vocalist, kind of locks things down a bit with the bass, and his vocals are this kind of, I say, relatively mid-range growl, but it's just ex just an extra texture over it, really. The big thing is the drums and these kind of crazed chords from the guitar work. The the songs go through amazing changes of paces. They're hyper complex. Like I I cannot tell you what is going on in anything by Ulcerate. Their music is so so weird and all over the place. Um, Destroyers of all seven track album. Most of the songs coming in about seven minutes. There's a lot of lots of changes. Lots of complex elements to the songs. This is some use of like clean tone guitar as well as like this hyper distorted really just sickening sound. They're a band I think best witness live because you can stare mesmerized at uh Jamie Murat's incredible playing but also like on album you can hear the the kind of madness that's going on there like the performances on this are are incredible 
and somehow it never, to me at any rate, descends into total wankery or self-indulgence. It's still really punishing throughout and and the drums being all over the place just kind of fits it just adds to the madness it adds to the chaos this is a hyper chaotic album um and i'd say one of my favorites of of ulcerate i don't think the follow-up to this particularly somewhat captured the sound quite as much there's something about this the whole sound of this album is, is perfect like it's so it's so kind of nasty, but also has this sort of somewhat hollow atmosphere to it. it. It it's really, it's really bleak. There's something so incredibly bleak about Ulcerate sound, um, and I don't know quite how they do it. I, I think it must be those weird chords um, Michael Hoggard's playing, and he, the, he's a guitarist you like watch live, and it's like I don't know how, not only how you hold those bizarre hand shapes but also how did you come up with this this is this is very unique and out there music and possibly is the result of this being like halfway through their career like they started in 2002 um so you know i've been working at this for almost 10 years at this point but in that time they've, they've certainly nailed a sound to number two of the best albums of 2011 and this is the belgian based uh, f- uh band oathbreaker with their first album maelstrom released on death with inc formed back in 2008 Th- these guys i would argue this almost isn't a metal album to my mind it sits somewhere between hardcore 
and black metal. Um, they they share a lot of members between the other Belgian bands, Amon Ra and uh, Wedgie Dude, who both of which I've talked about loving before. Um, part of a bigger collective actually called the Church of Ra, which is a whole whole load of bands across Belgium doing this this sort of sound of somewhere between black metal and hardcore, which is all just apocalyptic as fuck. And this album, this album is very, like a very big departure. We covered way back in 2016, Oathbreaker's third and possibly final album, which started bringing in loads of elements of like haunting clean vocal melodies and, and a far more black metal tinge. This album has none of that really. It's, it is far more to the point blasting hardcore but there's something so good about this album i do think maelstrom is actually the highlight of the career and i really want to hear more music like this it, it something about the sound of this is so interesting so the album just starts like just bursts straight in with the opener origin uh, at like two minutes of just incredible groove driven hardcore riffing with um Vocalist Kara Tang's like, incredibly high-pitched shrieks. She's such a powerful front woman and such an interesting presence. I remember I first came across this band live, no idea who they were, and she was wearing this kind of like flowing white dress and she's got really long kind of curly hair and you couldn't see her face for the entire set and like halfway through she was like sort of curled up in a pile on the floor just shrieking like mad. She, at real like banshee-like presence. The whole performance of this album, like the drums particularly really, drive this but you've got this huge guitar tone like really kind of like classic modern hardcore kind of tone um really solid bass tone as well um locked down by giles de Molder. um and then, then like just the perfect locking of guitar bass and drums it's very much focused as well on being a four-piece um, whereas later they, they did recruit another guitarist and become more of like that kind of expansive sound but with this it is you just balls to the wall riffing there's brilliant kind of builds in it as well despite the songs mostly being like three minutes long they do build up but they build up in like 10 seconds like you'll just get something like something will start and then like one guitar will lead it or like there'll just be a drum groove going by itself and then everything will just creep in and then huge groove orientated riff like really really memorable stuff like this is such a pummeling album and it's, it's actually something i'm not normally into like it has proper like breakdown sections but for some reason just the way they execute these just work um it's particularly interesting you have sink into sin part one and two in the middle of the album part one kind of sounds like a lot of the other tracks on it but then part two is essentially a three minute long breakdown like sink into sin one fades and kind of atmospheric noise and then you just get this huge crushing repeating riff there's those great moments in this album as well where um, like there's almost riffs that are just the drums. The drums have such an amazing sense of kind of groove and timing to them that they're really interesting and like make you bang your head just by himself. Um, little bits of lead guitar thrown in here and there, like just really fast like shreds. And it's like completely non-technical stuff. It's like the guitar is just playing like four notes like sort of picking super fast going up like a pattern of a couple of notes throwing in a little bit of whammy bar noise like 
the real standout here, like beyond the riffs, is Carrie's vocals. Like she's such a good front person. Her screams are mind-blowingly good. Um, and then we start getting a hint towards the album of things to come with the six-minute uh, sort of closer, glimpse of the unseen, which goes a lot slower, gets a lot more doomy and apocalyptic. Is a huge build-up, uh, massive middle section, and this kind of like slow fade to black essentially uh the production and everything sounds incredible to this the album's mixed by kurt blue which might explain why it has that kind of true hardcore punch there's something about I, i'm struggling to like get across i guess like just how good this album is if you like really riff driven kind of i guess metallic hardcore that kind of thing this is, this is could be for you but it's not that. It's something different. I don't know what it is. Like, it, it has, like, there's some kind of black metal atmosphere, and I have no idea how they've captured that with the way these songs are structured. Then we get an interesting ending as well of uh, Maelstrom. After Glimpse of the Unseen fades to nothing, we get this acoustic guitar song with Caro uh, just singing clean over it in quite a strange, haunting voice that, like, these last few tracks kind of hint at where the band's going to go because they take a far more black metal direction and a far more melodic direction with their later albums. And and it's a really cool closer to the album just because it's so different to everything that's gone before. But yeah, this album, not a an inch of fat on it. It is just a perfect pummeling.
Okay, so that brings us to my number one album, 2011, and one I do think is actually a masterpiece. And in a year that actually now I've gone through it, nowhere near as weak as I originally gave it credit. Like, that, despite a lot of disappointments in 2011, there's a lot of really interesting stuff. It just took a, I guess, a bit more digging and a lot of delving into genres I'm not normally so familiar with. So. We've covered one from this genre already. This is Leprous's bilateral release on Inside Out Music. This is proper prog metal, basically. They, so Leprous at this point in time, this is their second album. They're a bunch of very young musicians, like kind of famous in the Norwegian scene at the time for being ultra-talented musicians. Their first album, Tall Poppy Syndrome, very much in that dream theatre kind of vein, and their future albums would be quite like quite an inventive take on Gent. Bilateral sits really neatly in the middle of that because it's not either by any stretch. Like They completely shred, uh, shed the self-indulgence of Tall Poppy Syndrome, which is quite a bloated album, but they don't do any of the kind of... The, so later they focus on more simplistic melodies and kind of more off kilter, like uh, that that kind of gent like style of guitaring. This is, is none of that. It's kind of like a very unpretentious version of prog metal. Like the structures of the songs in this are so sort of weird and complex, but they don't waste time with with long solos or like particular any elements of self indulgence beyond maybe Einer's vocals, which are. Incredible. I, I, if you don't get on his vocals, this won't be for you. Obviously, this is not. Um, this is this is something which is very very vocal driven. And it's cool stuff as well. Like they they do a lot with um, both guitarists Tor and Oyston lend backing vocals to this album. Uh, Ina does these incredible high pitch like like beautiful wailing and then you then he also has this kind of almost shrieking black metal voice that he uses like just the right moments tobias anderson's the drummer for this album and the guy's incredible he's, he's now Eshon's main drummer like at this point as well um Ina is the younger brother of Eshon's wife lyriel and Eshon got involved in this album doing some guest vocals and I think he might have mixed this one. Oh no, no, uh, Jens Bogren mixed this one. He, he mixed the rest. But he picked up at this time Leprous as his backing band. And it's funny, like I remember not getting into Leprous around this point in time because I saw their Eshon's backing band but all the reviews were like, oh, they're shite because it was black metal people who like Eshon. This, this isn't for them. Also, they had a very obnoxious image, lots of red trousers and weird poses in their band photos from this earlier, this this era of their, their sound. But don't let any of that put you off. This is incredible. This is a truly unique album. Um, there's so much going on here. There's so many songs that, like, let's say particularly the kind of, the real standout track from the album, Forced Entry, this 10-minute epic that has these incredible build-ups, um, has, like, probably the biggest solo of the album, but that solo is just ready to set up this amazing ending, and the ending just gets so heavy and powerful, um, Kazaris Oyson lends these, like, backing death metal screams at it, like, just to emphasise how big it's got. We then get Restless, which is, like, the catchy single of the album, and has one of the weirdest music videos I've ever seen. Well worth a look if you're not not aware of it. Then Fawn gets a bit introspective and weird, and in the second half, Ishan's vocals come in with his, his proper throat-threading scream. So it's actually got a kind of a real nastiness in places to it. Then for just an absolute 
change in direction, completely something different. MB and Differentia, the middle track, is this incredibly gentle thing, mainly just led by these very quiet vocals and piano slowly building over its six minute length until it hits the huge payoff when all the guitars and drums come in. It was something that actually when they stopped playing a lot of this material live, that sat in the set for a lot longer. And we a lot of the tracks towards the end we start seeing them really wearing uh, their influences on their sleeve. Mediocrity Wins has a very Steve Wilson vibe, particularly in the vocals, doing these kind of almost like kind of whispered raps like that you get on something like Fear of the Blank Planet. And you because these are a very young band at the time. I mean they're all in their early twenties. Um you I guess you can still see their influences there, but they're certainly taking this and and taking it in a new direction, doing interesting stuff with it. Um the final track, Painful Detour, it's such a brilliant closer to the album. It really builds to something quite incredible. Uh, with, and just like just seals his off as like just one of those near perfect albums. There's nothing, there's no moment of this that without giving time doesn't come across as brilliant to me. Like the opener bilateral just just gets things going perfectly. It just just hits the ground running. Um, Ina's vocals are so good throughout this album. Like the amount of different melodies he's come up with that are all catchy and engaging I, I can't give this album enough praise like it's just done so perfectly and it's it's something I've just not really heard again since much like Oathbreaker's Maelstrom it just it just sits there and it's like I don't know what this is I I don't know why more bands haven't done this kind of sound the album cover is completely weird as well and gives no hint of what the album might be like and I really like that there's so much of this which um it's just a bit out there and a bit different uh like also so Leprous will soon hugely change their lineup I mean at this point in time only Einar and Tor from this album are still in the band but this is this is the point where most of the members have been in the band for their entire career from like you know age 14 um and, and this really built up to something they'd really found their own niche. Cole, the follow-up album, will take things in an even weirder direction. But whatever music you're into, I highly recommend trying to give Bilateral a go. There is there is a lot to this. This is an amazing melodic, but still dark, still heavy album, despite being essentially progressive metal. Like, not much progressive metal has as much atmosphere as, as Leprous are able to give it and still super engaging still still got the complex technical elements when you want it but it doesn't drown in it everything seems so focused on just being right for the song and i know later in their career they're going to go less and less technical essentially making stuff closer to like more traditional rock structures and that has its place but i'll never love it quite as much as i i love bilateral cole i'd say i'd argue possibly an even better album but both of them are just truly excellent. So anyway, that's that's my summary of 2011. Um, yeah, a year I hated uh, when f first kind of coming across stuff in it, but actually possibly a really brilliant one, particularly for a lot of like underground, quite extreme music, particularly grind and hardcore, had a lot of incredible moments. Um, Funeral Doom as well, because a lot of the kind of genres that get less attention in metal. But yeah, Hit me up, let me know what I missed. Um, I certainly got recommendations from a lot of you. I just didn't have time to cover ahead of this. And and let me know how you're getting on with the series. I know this one ran really long. I just seem to have a lot to talk about. I've had a huge amount of fun doing these. Like The research is it, so great. Spending time just 
getting to grips with an entire year in metal as best as I, I possibly can. Uh, yeah, so hit me up uh, on Facebook at Phil's Breakfast Metal, uh, on Twitter at Breakfast Metal, or if you want to get in touch by email, philsbreakfastmetal at gmail.com. Leave a review on iTunes. Let us know, you know, if, if you enjoy this, please yeah, give us a star rating there. That would that would really mean a lot. But yeah, get in touch. Let me know what you thought about this stuff. Is there is this some albums I totally miss? Is there something you disagree with even making it into this top 10 or top 15? And um, obviously, I'm going to be doing this series kind of on and off with the other stuff normally with Rob. Um, I think next episode we're going to be doing some tech def uh, together. But yeah, let me know what you what you think for the upcoming years. We've got 2012 through 2019 eventually. So just hit us up with any great albums, especially stuff that totally flew under the radar of those time periods. Oh